0: turn, if you would, to the seventh chapter. The apostle is writing to a group of Hebrews that have become followers of the Messiah of Christ and they are in the midst of the trials and the tribulations and the ongoing season of life. They are beginning to waver in their commitment and he is calling them back. And uh, so I want you to notice that uh, he, he exhorts them five times in this particular letter, not to abandon their commitment to the Word, that it's the Word that will hold them solid. And so this morning, to set the context for chapter 7, we have to come back to chapter 5. Notice verse 7, "...in the days of His flesh Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. He was heard because of His reverence, and although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered, and being made perfect, He became, that is, complete. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And about this, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing or you have become lazy. Lazy. What the apostle wants to do is move them beyond the ABCs of their Christian faith to some graduate level studies on what this truth is. And the first one he comes to is this doctrine of Melchizedek. Now, I know that's one of the names that shows up on the doctor says to you, it looks like you're going to have a son. And the first name that pops into your mind, we should name him Melchizedek. That is a familiar kind of ring to it. As my bride said at six o'clock this morning, she says, hey, I've lived my whole life not knowing about Melchizedek, and I think I'm doing just fine. Thank you. What does Melchizedek have to do with anything? Well, there, there are, as I say, there are, there are times when you find that you are speaking because they expect you to say something, but I have to tell you this morning, this is one of those passages where we are speaking because we have something to say. Uh, the, the musings on Melchizedek, this is, not, don't, don't, this is not going to be a homiletical sermon outline and all of that. It's just that after the weeks of unpacking this particular text, all of a sudden I think that it has actually come alive and it seems to make sense. So he, he says here, he, so he's taken a parenthetical, he's taken a, a deviation and he's called them out and he said, if, if you turn your back from following Jesus, where are you going to go? There, there is no plan B. And once you bend there, turn back, you can't come back. It's impossible. So he wraps it up in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6, where he says, We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And Abraham apportioned to him a tenth part of everything. And he is first, by a translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, the king of peace, is Without mother or father or genealogy, if you did an Ancestry.com check on him, nothing would show up. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, looking like an imitation of the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man does not have his descendant from them, he has received the tithe. He's a Gentile. He received tithes from Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself receives tithes, paid tithes, through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And I can see by looking at you that you've just been blessed right out of your socks by that. Imagine you've been working faithfully for a very prominent firm, seeking to honor the Lord with every execution of your responsibilities. One day, your supervisor invites you into his office to tell you that your name has been put forward for a prestigious new position. Not only will you be corporately promoted, but you will also be generously rewarded with a significant pay increase. You're definitely the best candidate for the job, but the boss says, there may be one problem. You'll become highly respected by all with whom you have worked over your Christian faith and your values. However, this new position is going to require that you play a bit soft on some of the regulations, do you be comfortable operating at times in the gray areas ethically. On occasion, you may even need to bend the rules in order to close the deal. Others are doing it on staff and it's not a concern for those in leadership. But for you, if bending the rules on occasion becomes a problem, then this coveted promotion will simply be given to another. What will you do? That's the pressure that Abraham was feeling when he stood between two kings in the valley of the kings in Genesis 14. If you've walked with Jesus for any significant period of time, you have likely discovered that your most vulnerable moments often follow closely upon your greatest moments of victory. The adversary makes a strategic attack when our defenses are most likely down. Such is the story we are introduced to by a man of the name Melchizedek. Upon receiving the alarming news that his nephew Lot and many of the other prominent citizens of Sodom had been overrun by the alliance of four kings, taken captive along with the treasures of their homes and city, Abraham called together 318 of his trusted servants and he followed the raiding party's footprints nearly 200 miles north to Damascus. Upon locating them, he executes a genius tactical assault and soundly defeats the powerful forces. Now is returned, traveling a total of nearly 400 miles, bringing home the liberated captives and the many, many treasures that have been recovered. In a gloriously understated moment of grace, the only other known godly man of true character, Melchizedek, The king of righteousness and the reigning king of Salem, which is Shalom, or we call it Jerusalem, comes down off his throne, out of his palace, into the valley to meet the victor in the ravine that is known as the Valley of the Kings. It is here the legendary battles would ultimately be fought. It was in this place, also known as the Kidron Valley, that key victories would ultimately be won. But of all the legendary battles waged there, only one would be greater than the one that the returning victorious Abraham would fight on that momentous day. Now, in our biblical text for this morning, the apostle picks up the story of one Melchizedek, a name he introduced earlier in chapter 5. The unique and mysterious individual, I told Linda I'm just going to call him the ninja priest, was only been mentioned two previous occasions in Scripture. It's intriguing that there are 23,145 verses in the Old Testament, and this man is only named in two of them. The first mention was 2,000 years before Christ back in Genesis 14. And the second one was 1,000 years after that, when King David wrote of him in the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 110. So now, another 1,000 years after that, we find his name appearing in this letter seven times. It's amazing how his one recorded, singular act of grace has honored his name, and we're talking about him now, 4,000 years later. One thing, and we remember it 4,000 years later. I've been trying to pack up my office and get ready for the next thing God has for me, and I have, I have put 19 boxes of books about the book in boxes. Going through, I've been flipping through papers and on. And I keep stumbling on to a quotation that I borrowed from someone years ago And it shows up in so many of my journals, I couldn't believe it. And it's this. The only thing people will bring back from your grave with them is the memory of your character. About 32 years ago, we were hosting, and I was still on staff at Indian Hills, we were hosting the legendary Dr. John Whitcomb, the great professor of theology at Grace Seminary. In those days, as I had most time in the years, I had about 12 young men, several of whom were contemplating going on into pastoral ministry. And so I asked Dr. Whitcomb if he would be open to having a breakfast with them. And so 12 of us were at, some of you may remember Kay's Restaurant. It made a movie, I think, Terms of Endearment or something. And we were sitting there with Dr. Whitcomb. I'll never forget. In those days, we called him Mike. Today, we know him as Dr. Michael Vlock. Mike Looked at Dr. Whitcomb and he said, and you got to remember in the ministry that we were involved in, we had kind of gotten off the rails a little bit on contemporary issues and controversies and things like that. And uh, so uh, Mike said to Dr. Whitcomb, how is it that you're able to study the scriptures and know the scriptures so well and stay up to speed on contemporary issues? And I'll never forget Dr. Whitcomb's answer. It, it was burned into my memory and it has become the logo of my life that's that the one thing I want my grandchildren to say about me when they leave my grave is this Dr. Whitcomb said you know the emphasis in contemporary is on the word temporary these issues will come and go what I want my children to say of me when they have buried me is this dad didn't know a lot about what was going on in the world but one thing I know dad knew his bible I want you to first notice the frequent references in our text to the word priest. You see, when we're introduced to the concept of priest, it's kind of like we read in the scriptures about kings and that. But we're Americans. You know, we can vote our king out every four years, you know. Or we can impeach him sooner than that. I mean, it was like we don't understand. And we don't understand because we're Gentiles. We don't really understand the whole priest thing. I, I remember when we were in Haiti and sitting at, at, at dinner one night, one of the Haitian leaders looked across the table and say, hey, Tom, can I ask you a question? I said, Is it true that presidents in the United States, former presidents, actually still live in the United States? It was like, it was a foreign thing to him. So he you know, was like, so we talk about kings. When we talk about priests, he said, For us Gentiles, it's like, that it doesn't make any sense. But for this original audience it made great sense priests were that they were the nuts and bolts they were they were the worn sweatshirt of comfort for them you see to them a priest represented the freedom of access to God because there was a priest there God was willing to receive them It, it it was a promise that if they would bring appropriate sacrifices that God would receive those sacrifices to cover their sins The very presence of a priest was a reminder that there was offered full and complete forgiveness. Just having a priest there was a reminder that it is possible for sinful man to communicate with holy God. God had created an avenue, a way that a sinful person could communicate to a holy God. So having a priest was just a security thing. But now they're following Christ Jesus, who he is introducing as this great high priest, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and they don't have that tangible comfort. And so he reminds them. The the priest shows up over and over here in the Scripture. In the Bible, it appears 864 different times. Of those 864 different times, 35 of those are in the book of Hebrews. We've already seen it over and over. Chapter 2, verse 17, he was a merciful and faithful high priest to the service of God. Chapter two or 3, verse 2, he was the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Chapter 4, verse 14, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Chapter 4, verse 15, We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest is chosen from among men and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Chapter 5, verse 5. Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but he was appointed. Chapter 5, verse 6. He is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 5, verse 10. He became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 6, verse 20. He is our forerunner, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All of those references to priest, and then you get to chapter 7. Take some time this afternoon. Highlight the number of times the word priest shows up in one chapter alone. The hearts will be drawn back to the comfort and the security of the rituals of a tangible, recognizable priest. What about the priest and the Scriptures? There's 864 times. Well there were some requirements. Not just anybody could be a priest. You couldn't just say along and say, well, you know, God's kind of laid on my heart. I ought to be a priest and I think I want to be one. And you get a few friends that would recognize that calling from God and they would appoint you as a priest. It didn't work that way. In order to be a priest, you had to be able to prove that you had a genealogy that took you back to Levi, to the Levitical tribe. But just simply being a Levite heir was not enough. You also had to narrow it to you. You had to be able to trace your ancestry directly to Aaron, the brother of Moses. To be a priest was an enviable thing because it represented this connection between sinful man and holy God. They spoke to God on behalf of people and they spoke to people on behalf of God. It was an enviable thing, but it was not superior to, but it was subordinate to the king. But, it was prohibited that one individual could be both a king and a priest. So that's why when you read the text, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, would have caused pause on behalf of those who first heard it. There were two situations in their Old Testament story that spoke of a king that tried to be both. You hear about Saul in First Samuel. And they've won a great victory and he wants to worship God and give him gratitude and praise for that and he's waiting for Samuel who said he would come but Samuel was delayed and so the people are getting a little antsy and edgy and so Saul just decides, well, I'm the king, I can be the priest as well and he offers the sacrifices and just as he does that, across the horizon comes Samuel. I said, what have you done? For this reason, God has rejected you and your household as king of his people. The other one is in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, where the second greatest king in the history of Israel was King Uzziah. And King Uzziah, you read through it, it's amazing what he accomplished. He kind of made Nebuchadnezzar look like a kindergartner or something. He was able to do so many things, but there was was one thing he wanted that he didn't have, and he wanted the dignity of being the priest. And so it tells us that he went into the temple And he started lighting the fire, and 85 priests confronted him, and he pushed back against them, and God struck him with leprosy. And they cast him out of the temple, and this super successful leader of the people of God dies with this epitaph on his stone. Here lies a leper. And yet here it says that this Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. The other thing that is interesting about it is that he is a Gentile. You see, Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, and Levi comes from the tribe of the nation of one of 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. There was no nation of Israel. This high priest, who is the prototype of Christ, is a Gentile and not a Jew. But he is also both a king and a priest. And he also, it says, he has neither a father nor mother. Doesn't mean that that he just kinda of dropped out of the clouds. It simply means that God, in his wisdom and grace, did not give us his lineage. You see, in order to be a priest, you had to be able to prove your genealogy that went back to Levi and also narrow it down, you could also had to prove on paperwork that you were a descendant of Aaron, and here was one you could trace no genealogy whatsoever. So he speaks as a portrait of the eternality of Christ. The other thing that's significant is in verse three, it says, "But he resembles the Son of God and continues as a priest forever. The big debate in all of the books is that is, is Melchizedek actually a theophany? Is it a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? Or is he an angel or what? And all it says here is that Christ is the original. And Melchizedek is a copy of him. He's like Christ. Now the significance of it is unpacked for us in verses 4 to 10. And we're going to pick this up because it keeps coming up over and over in the 7th chapter. But the high points along the way are this. That he is greater than Abraham who to the Jews was considered to be the greatest man of all of history. And yet there is one that he proves over and over again. That this one was willing to accept a tithe from Abraham. So you only give the tithe to one who is superior or greater. And he was willing to receive it, not as a payment of a debt or obligation. So he goes through that. In the law, there is instruction, see... That the Levitical tribe was not to inherit any land or property, but their inheritance was the service of God, and the tithe was their inheritance. So when people tithed in, in their worship, then from that tithe, the Levites would exist, they would provide for their families, and they would survive. He receives a tithe not because there's a debt, because he had done no ministry for Abraham. The only two known godly men in a totally pagan Environment. Here you've got the king of righteousness and peace reigning between the seductive king of Sodom and the decadent kings of Canaan. And yet there's Abraham and there is Melchizedek reigning there. He receives the tithe. And the interesting thing is how many times the word tithe shows up in chapter 7. So when you're just doing musings, and again, this is not like a sermon with an outline, it's just kind of like, wow, did you see that kind of thing? Notice in verse 2, it says, a tenth. Part of everything was given to him. In verse 4, it says the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. It goes on to say that according to the commandment of the law, that the tithes from the people are given to the Levites. Verse 6 says that this man does not have his descendant from them receive... Ties from Abraham, verse seven or verse eight says, "In in the one case, ties are received by mortal men." In verse nine, it says, that "Levi himself, who receives ties, paid ties through Abraham because his great grandfather paid ties to Melchizedek." It's as though he himself did. And the point of the ties will come up later as we work through. It's not a legalistic kind of standard or expectation. The law is yet hundreds of years from being written, the point is is that Abraham wanted to express his adoration and his gratitude to God for his great kindness. And so he gave him a 10% tip. Now when this service is over, I hope to take my bride out to lunch. And when lunch is over, our standard at lunch is usually about 20%. You might still be on the 15% tip Thing, but it's just uncomfortable when you bow your head in public and thank the Lord for the food and then you cheap them out. That just doesn't, not a good testimony. So well, I just think about that. I said I, I give I'll give the waiter 20% and I'll hope that God is satisfied with a 10% tip. American evangelicals have elevated their giving. Now I think the latest statistics indicate that they give about 3% in benevolence. The, the point being here it was a declaration of gratitude how does he give express his gratitude to God you're going to see that when we jump to chapter 14 of Genesis he does it by giving a gift to the man who stands between him as a mediator and a holy God he blessed the man who has been blessed by God with promises remember last week we talked, Genesis chapter 12 I will bless you I'll make your name great through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That one who has those promises of blessing is now blessed by this man. It is the superior who passes the blessing to the inferior. And then notice he goes on in verse 10 to say that Levi was still in Abraham's loins. He hasn't even had children yet because grandpa worshipped and gave submissive Offerings this way, so it is that it always it sends, which basically you say Melchizedek is a greater priest than all of the Levites and all the Aaron's. Jesus is like that one. We have a greater Melchizedek. So, now that I've lost all of you, I want you to take your Bible and turn back to chapter fourteen of the book of Genesis. This is one of those one of those passages where. As you're grappling with it, you're thinking but there, there, there's something here. I mean, it's like the author trying to encourage floundering Hebrew Christians not to give up, not to release their grip, not to cave in under pressure and trial, thinks that this is a game changer. So he refers to somebody that's only mentioned two times in the Old Testament, and he builds his exhortation on that, and you're thinking there's got to be something here. They knew the story of Melchizedek. We don't. As I said, Linda said this morning at six o'clock, I've lived all these years not knowing about Melchizedek. and i new one just fine, thank you. Why do I need to know about Melchizedek? Well, here's why. Chapter 14 of Genesis. What happens is there is a very powerful king that has imposed his will on other kings. As you're reading this afternoon through Genesis 14, circle the number of times you see the word king. So what has happened is, is that in order for them to be allowed their freedom, their independence, they will pay him taxes. They have paid the taxes for 12 years. In the 13th year, they got together and said, that's it. We're not paying the taxes anymore. This is way too heavy a burden. We're going to stop paying the taxes. I've had some friends do that. They tell me that the food's not that bad and the beds are not that uncomfortable. I don't have to pay my taxes and so, you know, they get to be Put up on your tax dollar. They decided they wouldn't do it. And they got away with it in the 13th year. But the 14th year, the king grabs three of his powerful allies, and they come down and just devastate them. You can read the battle here. The kicker is in verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. It's the first hostage situation recorded in the scripture. The nephew of the wealthy Abraham taken captive. Now, the interesting thing as you read the story is, they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who was dwelling in Sodom. Remember in chapter 13, they came back from Egypt. God was prospering their two businesses. They finally decided we can't operate our businesses together. Our staffs are getting in conflict with each other. We need to split it up. Abraham says to Lot, he says, hey, you figure out where you want to live. You go that direction. Whatever's left, I'll go that direction. No problem. Lot says, well, I feel more like an urbanite, you know, than rule. So I'll go live by Sodom. And he's reading chapter 13 and he went and he pitched his tent. He set up his, he was just living out. He was kind of like an acreage dweller outside of Sodom. But by this time, he is now living in Sodom. And regrettably, Sodom has begun living in him. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Escol and Anar, these were allies of Abram. Now mark those. The first time I read them, I said, "What is that? That's a lot of detail we don't need." It shows up. When Abram heard that his kinsman, that is his nephew, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, three hundred and eighteen of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Shepherds. Herdsmen. Servants. Staff. Not soldiers. Not military trained. And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and he defeated them. <laughs> not only he defeat them, he drove them north to Hobar above Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions. He also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Isn't that interesting? These great, mighty military aggressors are surprised during the night. They've, they've, they have chased them, followed their footprints for 200 miles north, and rather than take a nap, they went to battle. And the surprise attack, the strategy worked, and they won. And they take the people and all the stuff. Now, verse 17. After his return from the defeat and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. That is, the king's valley. Abraham's made a 200-mile journey. He's won a battle, and he's bringing everything back, the weight, the responsibility of all that. At this point, Abraham is weary, exhausted, dirty, tired, and he still has the responsibility of all those people and all those possessions on his shoulders. He is in a most vulnerable situation. You see, he controls the table. He's holding all the cards. All the strings are in his hand. The question I had when I read it is, how is it that the people in Sodom were taken, but the king survived? And he wouldn't go dig a hole in the ground and hide or something? He's like, when they're waiting for a leader, there's no leader to be found. But now that somebody else has won his value for him, he's ready to go on and embrace him. And here's, here's the vulnerable point. He's going to make an offer to Abraham that was almost impossible to refuse. We'll have the biggest house in Sodom. You can sit on all of the advisory teams and boards. We'll even have an annual Abraham celebration day in your honor. All you need to do is just let me have the people that I care for, and you can keep the possessions. Almost. I mean, it was... It was reasonable to say, you know, to the victor goes the spoils. So it seems like a legitimate offer. You could rationalize it away and say, this is the greatest thing ever. Except if he does not say no to the king of Sodom in this moment, he will never be able to say no to him again. We as churches faced that about two years ago with the first COVID thing and the Paycheck protection plan and all that. I'm grateful to the stewardship team and the elders who prayed about it and said, you know, if we take money from the government now, when they tell us we can or can't do this, how are we going to be able to say no? That's the pressure Abraham's feeling. It was a moral, ethical decision that he had to make. But he doesn't know the king of Sodom is coming to make him the offer. God knows watch what the grace of god does this is this is amazing this is like when you're going along going oh i really like this story somebody ought to hear this so the valley of shiva is known to us as the kidron valley it runs between jerusalem the temple mount and the garden of gethsemane there are many wars and battles that have been fought there melchizedek verse 18 the King of Salem, that is the King of Shalom, the King of Peace, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Now, the thing that hit me around Tuesday or so this week was that his name's only mentioned twice—once here and once in Psalm 110—but then you get into uh, into Hebrews and it's mentioned seven times. Never one time does he say anything about the bread and the wine. It's like, well, what's the significance of the bread and the wine? Well, bread was a symbol of strength. It's it's the one essential that man needs in order to survive. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. If you you eat of me, you'll never die. It's it's a symbol of strength, and Abraham was weary, exhausted, and and he needed to be encouraged again. God sent the king of, of peace to restore the strength of the weary warrior and wine is a symbol of joy celebration and blessing but it says and he was a priest of God most high and so he that is the king he gets up off his throne leaves the palace and in humility, condescending, he comes down into the valley rather than expect Abraham to come up to where he is and dig, he comes down to where he is to meet his need. And he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram by, by God, most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be." God Most High. Again, a high priest is representative of God to the people and of the people to God. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Do you see the the marvel of God's amazing grace? Before Sodom, the king of Sodom, the king of seduction, could speak his offer to Abram, God knew the vulnerability of his man And he sent one who would remind him of who his God was. Abraham, your God is the God most high. Your God is the one that possesses everything. Don't be tricked or seduced by the toys of Sodom. Because your God owns it all. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything, not to pay a debt, but simply as a demonstration of his gratitude. Because every one of us needs to remember that when we have done something as an act of faith, a courageous step of faith, and God meets it with gracious blessing, we need to remember it wasn't us, it was him. Four times in the one text he has called God Most High who has delivered your enemies in your hands. Abram, don't get all high and mighty. Don't think you're all this and that. You didn't win the battle because your 318 shepherds are stronger militarily than they. You didn't win the battle because you tactically and strategically attacked during the night. The story of your success is nothing less than the thumbprint of God upon a willing servant. So Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Now the king of seduction makes his appeal. Give me the persons but take the goods for yourself. I, I, somehow I, I feel like I owe you. And notice what Abram said in verse 22. But he said to the king of Sodom. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, Jehovah, God most high. He uses two names. I have have sworn an oath. We talked about that last week when God swores an oath by himself because there's no one higher than that. He has sworn to the God most high. Notice he describes him to the pagan king. My God is the possessor of heaven and earth. If I need anything, He is capable of providing. I will not, I swore an oath, I would not take a thread, a sandal strap, or anything that is yours. I will say no now so that I can say no in the future, lest you would say, I made Abram rich. Look at what I made, the great Abram. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, it took some food on the way up and down, and the share of the men who went with me. I, I'm not speaking on their behalf. They can speak for themselves. But God has laid it on my heart that I am to take nothing so that only God gets the glory and the credit for what He has done. I always was interesting. I wrote in the margin of my Bible, Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 says that each of us are to be convinced in our own minds Abraham doesn't impose his conviction on those around him. And then he goes on, and I told you to keep the other names in mind. Notice what he says here, the last verse, let Aner and Eschol and Mamre take their share. It's, uh, if you want to give them some stuff, that's okay. They're not under the same vow, oath or I am, but I want you to know that whatever God does in my life, it is God who gets the glory. So, three takeaway principles. Number one, your greatest battle will often follow your greatest victory. I think you, if you've walked with Jesus for any time, you know that to be true. That's why the week after youth camp and college retreat is so dangerous. Because you come out of this hyped up, high, kind of exciting, Jesus visited us in Wyoming kind of thing. And then you come back to the world, real world and your, your guard is down. Satan will always check, challenge us at the moment after God has most greatly blessed us. Second, just as Melchizedek of old was a minister to help in a time of trouble, so our greater Melchizedek, Christ is a high priest to come at our most needed moment and minister to us. That's why he says in chapter 4, verse 15, we, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tested in every way, just like we are, and yet without sin. Christ comes to minister in our times of trouble. Only a sovereign God could see the king of Sodom making his way to make Abraham an irrefutable offer. And in between them, put the ministry of Melchizedek to remind him again that you didn't do this yourself. God did this. And if you need some stuff, your God possesses everything in heaven and earth. But the third principle is this the path to victory in the face of temptation is the commitment you have made before the trial begins. When the test came, Abram reflected back on a decision he had already made. I swore an oath to God that I would not take. When did he do that? Well, I'll tell you what. When you're traveling with a whole bunch of returning goods and a whole bunch of formerly captivated people and you've got a 200-mile trip home to take and you're walking... He had a lot of time to think. To the victor goes to spoils. Losers keepers. What am I going to do with all this stuff? And while the temptation, like Achan, who couldn't resist the temptation, so Abraham said, I'm not going to take any of it. So that nobody can ever say that the king of Sodom made me a wealthy man. Now there was another great test that's going to take place in the very same valley. Like we said, it's called the Valley of the Kings. It's called the Kidron Valley. It was there not many years later that this same Abraham would stand with his young son. And he would look at his servants and he'd say, you guys wait here. The lad and I, we're going to go up on that mountain. We're going to worship the Lord. And we're going to return. Would his God, the God Almighty, the possessor of heaven and earth? Would he meet him with sufficient grace to give back to God the dearest thing in his life? I mean, for some of us, giving God 10% is like a major sacrifice. What if he asked for your child? Would he give it back? And he won that battle that day. And he went to the mountain and he offered his son, and God provided a, a lamb. But there's a second one. 2,000 years after Abraham stood there with Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus himself fought a battle in the valley of the Kidron. When he left the upper room with the disciples, and he made his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, And he had come for that very purpose that he would give his life and yet the humanity of his soul was still at struggle with the submission to the will of the Father. And on his way he had to decide if there's any other way nevertheless not my will but thine be done. Jesus won a greater battle in this valley 2,000 years later. And now, when you contemplate the text, and again, these are just musings on Melchizedek. When you contemplate the text, you're not done working on it until the aha moment. And I have to to confess that I didn't have the aha moment until Thursday of this week. And also, it's right there on the page, and I just totally missed it. Look what he says in verse 2, the aha moment. This Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also the King of Shalom. That is, the King of Peace. There will never be peace. Until first, there is righteousness. You want to know why the world is clamoring for peace and can't find it? Because the world is not willing to embrace the righteousness of God. To the first listener, it's the righteous robes of Christ that have been draped upon you by faith in His finished work that has secured you in the midst of your trial. And because of that, According to Romans chapter 5, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace will always follow righteousness, but it will never precede it. If you are lacking peace in your life, you must begin by recognizing your sinful condition, your personal separation from God who created you in His image, You need to come to the end of yourself and cry out to Him for mercy. And in His grace, He will apply His Son's shed blood to your case. He will forgive your sins. He'll make you right before Him. He will declare you to be right in His eyes. And when that happens, and only then, will He give you His peace. It's not behavioral modification. It's the fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit. God in His grace desires to give you His peace. But before He can do that, you must embrace His righteousness.